It's great to see you this morning. Uh, uh, good to be back. I was with my mom and dad last weekend. I tell you, it's a good thing, cool thing for me to uh, get up on Sunday morning somewhere else and think, you know what, I'm not home. Uh, and that's just a cool thing. If you've ever moved, you know, it takes a little while to kind of to shift all of it, just even psychologically and and just this week, I was like, I'm not home. I'm not home. I miss home. So, cool thing for me. But uh, thanks, Ken, for uh, doing what you did. And uh, it's great to see you again this morning. We want to finish just our three-week look at this word called oikos. Um, remember, we're not talking about Greek yogurt. Um, although, whoa. Although they have tapped into what this is all about, right? Uh, as they have branded that yogurt, it is the feeling of, of home, of familiar, of, of even kind of the idea of this is a homemade yogurt. This is, this is a family thing that we do. And that's exactly what the word oikos means, extended household. And in the scriptures especially, the whole idea was we, they lived in um, <clears throat> communities of, of people where it was not just mom, dad, Sue, Tim, and the dog, um, but it was maybe even uh, a compound type feel a lot of times where they lived in very close proximity. Uh, there was even slaves or laborers for different families and businesses. There were children of those people. There, it just was, you lived kind of in the idea of an extended family or household. And this word is replete throughout the New Testament because that was their culture. But it's also something that, <clears throat> that was the reason why 120 people waiting on the Holy Spirit in the upper room, 120 people literally became the catalyst for a couple centuries later, Christianity becoming the, uh, the named official religion of the world, of the Roman Empire. It wasn't because of church buildings, because there were none. Uh, it wasn't because of church programming, because there wasn't really any. It was through this dynamic of realizing that when I come to Jesus, I have great influence. I have trusted relationships uh, in my oikos, my extended family. And I just naturally find ways to share what Jesus has done for me. I get to live it out in front of these people. And then as, as there's the reasonable time, it's the right time, um, it's the right atmosphere, so to speak, I am able to then share what Jesus has done in my life and who he is. And that was the dynamic for the world changing literally for Jesus Christ. In the this, uh, this world of oikos. They saw it through that way. And I would tell you today that it really is no different. You have an oikos. You have an oikos. They would tell us that there's about 8 to 15 people that you are 
uh, that are a part of your extended uh, family or extended household that any at any time in your life as just kind of a rule, obviously there's exceptions to rules, but you have about eight to 15 people that you have trusted relationships with, um, that you, you have influence in their life. You've built up uh, influence in their life. And, and we know that's through different areas, like our, obviously our biological, our family, right? Um, uh, we have, I hope, trusted relationships in our family, um, although I've, I've learned that that's not always a guarantee, right? Um, man, you're looking at me really serious. Have, have you ever not, have you ever never had family dynamics, but uh, dysfunctionality? Anyway, so hopefully your family is your biological, that's a part of your oikos, um, obviously your vocation where you work, you'd be surprised. Uh, these are people you spend um, hundreds, thousands of hours with. And I realize, especially in our politically correct climate, can't just probably have um, a lot of open conversations um, in the workplace. But yet you have built up influence and they trust you. And they're looking at your life and in the right moment, in the right atmosphere, in the right context, you absolutely have built up enough trust um, that you could very easily share what Jesus has done for you and who he is. Um, maybe it's in your geographical, your, your, your neighborhood, the community you live in. You've built uh, trusted relationships. Maybe it's in the hobbies that you have, the volitional, the choice activities that you do, the, the, uh, the, golf, uh, the golf league or, or the bowling league or the, I, I don't know, ladies, although you might do golf and bowling, the scrapbooking community or... Um, I, I don't know what the, you know, but um, uh, you have an oikos. You definitely do. I don't know what the number is, but I guarantee you, you have influence. You have trusted relationships. And it's in that context that actually the gospel of Jesus Christ is spread. It's spread. Um, yeah, maybe every once in a while we meet somebody, never know them. It's kind of like we call cold evangelism, where you just share Jesus, and for whatever reason, they come to the Lord. That happens every once in a while. Um, but as we have seen, and uh, uh, if you'll skip one slide there, uh, Mackenzie, we have seen that the ways that people come to Christ, I mean, it is, it is weighted huge toward people in your oikos, your friends, your relatives. It's really probably not going to be through the church, through a pastor or a, um, uh, a program. All those, those things fulfill a role and a function. And in fact, I probably, I probably believe that the most important things that we do here as we come together is to equip and empower and encourage each other so that then we can do what? Go out and share Jesus Christ. Because it's always been the, the reason why people come to Jesus is because of you and your oikos and your life lived and your word spoken and your spirit shared with them. And so this is the oikos principle. The oikos principle, it's kind of these three things. The most natural and common environment for evangelism is to cure, occur is in your oikos. A group of 8 to 15 people with whom you share your life most closely. Your sphere of influence. 
The, the people for whom God wants to prepare you to become an ideal instrument of his grace. And so wanting to share this idea, if, if through the year we try to speak on different themes, and, and obviously Jesus was made a big deal about go and make disciples, right? The Great Commission is what we're talking about. So surely I should be talking about the Great Commission. And I honestly think this is at the heart of the Great Commission, is this oikos principle. And yet wanting to also look into the word as we look at this idea, we came to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and more clarity on how to reach my oikos. And we saw in that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see in verse 20 that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So he, Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so we notice this first thing is, is in your oikos, be it or embrace your identity as Christ's representative. Uh, when we take ownership, when we have identity, it's amazing how it colors the way we act, the way we think, the way we go forward. And here he's saying, listen, you're it. You're my voice. You're, you're the reason why people will come to believe. Uh, obviously, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about uh, salvation, but he uses us to point people toward Jesus Christ. That God, his ultimate desire, his ultimate mission, what he's all about is being reconciled to lost people, right? Um, so much of what we have been about is what we've been against. I told you that sometimes I walk around, I think people look at me with 10 commandments on my head. When they find out I'm a pastor, that's not what we're about. What we're about is this. We are about, we are representatives of Jesus Christ telling a lost and fallen world that Jesus has done something about that. That his desire, what he has went all the way to the cross for is to be connected to them again. That's who we are, and that's our identity. And so, as we talked about in that passage, we do not view people from a worldly point of view. Uh, what he's saying there is we now look at everybody with one thing in the back of our minds is are they connected to Jesus Christ? Are they connected to Jesus Christ? And as a believer, we begin to look at everybody with that in mind. Lord, does this person know Jesus? Does my coworker, who I really enjoy working with, we have a great work and we become great friends. But Lord, in my heart of hearts, I, I, the, the ultimate thing I want to see in their life is for them to know you. To know you, my family, my friends, all these different parts of my oikos. We look at them no longer from a worldly point of view. What can they do for me or how do they make me feel or, or blah, blah, blah. It is now all I think about or at the back of my mind at the baseline of everything, of every relationship is, Lord, are these people connected to Jesus Christ? Because that's what you're doing and you've actually called me to be your rep in this, to be your agent and to, to pray for to, um, to share when it's appropriate. You hear me say these words. You've met a lot of people where it's been inappropriate, right? Just like jump right in or, um, you know, even stuff like if you died tonight, would you be in hell? Um, maybe that's worked some, but a lot of times it doesn't. And, and you've all of a sudden just burned a bridge uh, with people if they're trusted relationships, right? So you, the Lord can give you discernment. 
Some people respond to that. Other people don't. Lord, help me to know how to approach people, you know? But um, I'm looking at everybody in that way. The second thing Ken talked about in this passage as he's revealing to us, man, this is who you are, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that we are a new creation. Uh, the old is gone and the new has come. And a part of this whole thing is that we are living it. Um, we, are embracing, we are embracing being a new creation. Our words absolutely will fall short. And our testimony will mean nothing if we are not becoming new. If we are not the new creation where the old is passing away. Remember we shared that popular quote. I think both Sundays we shared it because it's so powerful. That um, the reason why most people will not believe or do not believe is because the actions of people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. That's why hypocrite is such a flashpoint word when you talk about religion or you talk about Christianity. And so absolutely, if I'm ever going to be used by God as his ambassador to reach my oikos, to see people in my oikos know Jesus, then I've got obviously to be living it out. It's not perfection, all right? It might be even in the moment where you, you screw up, you mess up, you, 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 uh, and you ask for forgiveness, but you model this continual walk with Jesus Christ that even in moments of sin or mistake, that in your desire to be molded into God's image, as you model that out, that might be the greatest part of your testimony to people who look on and say, wow, I, I, that's, that's incredible. I don't see that. People are, are so, you know, um, they don't do that. And what, what's going on with you? Why do you do that? How, what is go, it might even be in that. So living it out isn't perfection, but it's a consistent desire to be what Jesus has called you to be and walking with him. But I want to show you one more thing. One more thing I think that this passage is, is bringing out. There's obviously a lot more things. You could spend a lot of time. Some guys really do that. I mean, they spend months in these passages. We're not doing that. But there's a third thing I just would like to grab from this passage as I have looked at it. And that's actually in chapter 6. As, um, as he's finishing this section, he started in 5.11 and kind of finishes up in 6, uh, 1 and 2. And he says, as God's co-workers, we urge you. And that, that word is beg. Um, uh, it's a strong word. Um, it's down on my knees, on my face if I have to be. But I am begging you. And Paul does this every once in a while. He does, it, he does it in Romans chapter 12 after he shared everything that God has done for them and what that can mean for them. As he culminates Romans in chapter 12 and verse 1 and he says, I beg you therefore to present your bodies as living sacrifice. I mean, it's a huge deal. He's doing the same thing here. In light of who you are and the power and the influence you have through being my representative and living it out and showing a world what your grace can do, I beg you, I beg you, receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I help you. I helped you. I tell you, 
Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now he uses that word now twice. And um, in fact, in this, the way this is written, he, um, he says, behold, now is the time of salvation. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very strong exclamation point. Raise your voice, passionate kind of word. Behold, now, the focus is on this word, this little word, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He actually is quoting from the Old Testament. Isaiah has used this, this, uh, this in here. At the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. But it was also in Isaiah where just a little bit later, God says this, seek the Lord while he may be what? Found. And call upon him while he is near. He is not always found and he is not always near. We remember Genesis that God sometimes in lives uh, as he shared with Noah that my spirit will not always work with men. And so the, the idea here as he's pulling from Isaiah, as Isaiah has already shared, as the writer of Hebrews would say, you better come, chapter 4, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 4, you better come now. You better respond now. You better not turn, you better not turn away from the faith now because this is the time for you. And that is exactly what Paul is tapping into now, now, now. This is who you are. This is the opportunity you have. But don't delay in doing it. Don't delay in thinking a better time or a different sage or a different season of my life. I'll be more apt to be Christ's ambassador. He's saying now, now, now. So I've been thinking about that. Now, now is the day of salvation. You can count how many times they say now, okay? I'll give you something if you can. I'm doing it on purpose. Now, because that little word is powerful now. And I was thinking about, well, Lord, I'm trying to, I'm thinking in your word about people who shared faith, who you used. And I landed on this story in John chapter 4. Um, John chapter 4 is, it begins this way. And Jesus knew that he needed to go through Samaria. Okay? Normally, as 12 Jewish men or 13 Jewish men, they would have avoided Samaria when they were traveling. He was traveling back up, and he would have avoided Samaria. Again, probably like, um, uh, you know, kind of the idea of like Woody Hayes wouldn't buy gas in Michigan, right? Kind of that idea. You remember that? That he would not, when he crossed the state line, he wasn't going to give Michigan any of his business. Or I'm sorry, that school up north. You know, that kind of conflict there. You didn't go through Samaria. You avoided it because there was deep hatred. And, and obviously, I think I've shared before some of the reasons why that. Samaritans were, they were mixed breed. They had diluted the uh, pure Jewish race by marrying of other nations and established. And that was, they were hated. 
And yet Jesus, if we begin this chapter, he's like, I have to go. It's very clear. What is it the old King James says? I must need or I need to go through Samaria. And that's how it starts. And we see very quickly why he needed to. Because you remember how the story goes? They come to a well. And it says Jesus is weary. He's tired. And he sits down at this well. And the disciples decide to go into town to get some food, right, to eat. And Jesus is just resting at this well. It says it's about the noon hour, which it, which it would have been a quiet hour at the well. Um, women normally went to the well. Um, men worked in the field. Women got the water for the family. And they would normally do that at dusk. This was not the time. And Jesus is, is there and he's, I guess it's not busy. I don't know if he was alone, but he's sitting there. And a woman shows up. And right off the bat, we, we realize that this is, this is not normal. And we begin to realize why it's not normal. As he begins to engage this woman in conversation. Which was, again, another thing. Uh, men and women, you know, uh, especially a rabbi or a teacher, really didn't address women in that. Jesus totally blew that up, didn't he? As he was laying the foundation for the equality of men and women, which the world had taught totally flipped upside down, right? Um, and he, he starts to dialogue with this woman. And we quickly realize um, that she's a Samaritan, strike one, right? In, in everybody else's mind, um, that the reason why she is, most probably the reason why she's at the well is because she's not a very uh, respected or well thought of woman in that society. Uh, she admits that, uh, what, she had five husbands and the, one sh the man she was with now was not her husband. Um, I can't remember who is it in our culture who's been married like seven times. Um, not, in our culture, we still look on it like, wow, that's, that's a lot, you know. Well, back then, I mean, that was like, wow, I mean, you are terrible. And uh, that's why she probably showed up at noon um, to avoid... Uh, the, the other ladies in the community because she was shamed and scorned and looked at. She was just trying to avoid all that. I mean, this woman is, is an outcast in her society. As Jesus begins to talk to her, we realize that she's pretty ignorant too. She doesn't, Jesus even said, kind of makes references as he's talking to her, that uh, she doesn't know much about uh, faith or religion, or she makes mention of her people, but Jesus kind of, as he's having this conversation, she's kind of an ignorant woman. She, as far as um, she doesn't understand the dynamics of, of, uh, uh, of her faith. And yet Jesus continues to talk to her. You remember that conversation? As he, um, he, he talks to her about water, he asks for water. And um, she starts to dialogue and he says, well, I have water uh, that I can give you that you'll never thirst again. And in that conversation, Jesus shares with her that he knows her life story without ever met, meeting her. And she is absolutely blown away as Jesus shares who he is, what he's done in that context. And, um, and 
as you read through that, you come to verse 28. And Jesus has this conversation. The disciples show up. And this is how it starts. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, Jesus, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have found food to eat that you know nothing of. And the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. And so we see that this woman, immediately as she has this, this confrontation, not encounter with Jesus, she is completely changed by it. She goes back into the town. And do you notice her words, which I want you to grab a hold of these words, come and see. Come and see. And you know what she did? She's basically saying, look at my life. You guys know who I am. You know what I was about. You know, but I want you to come and see someone who can do something about, who could do something about my life. And Jesus As he's having this conversation, she's in town. She's telling the people about what she's experienced. Jesus is saying this. Don't you guys have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. Um, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. You know what that is exactly Like, that's exactly what Paul's saying. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus is getting ready. He's making a prophetic word because he's getting ready to also, he already knows what's coming. He knows that the town is going to spill out, come to see him. He knows that in a few verses, they're going to find him as savior. He knows why he needed to go through Samaria. But he's making a point to the disciples and saying, listen, you guys always say, well, the harvest, we got to wait till the harvest. You know, it's four months, the crops have got to grow. But he says, listen, in what I'm trying to share with you, the truth of what it means to see people come to know me, the fields are always ripe. It's always ready. It's exactly what Paul was saying. Now is the day of salvation. Verse 30, uh, keep going there. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. It's not on the, he's saying uh, the agricultural schedule. This already somebody's been reaping. It's now, always, always, always people are ready. It's ripe. It's white. Always, always. Thus the saying, one sows, the other reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And then it says this, many of the Samaritans from that town believed 
in him because of the what? The woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we believe for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. Hey, this is the way it works. This is exactly Jesus. You've heard this, right? You go to a missions conference. Why are the fields under harvest? What he's trying to say is exactly what Paul is trying to say. Now is the day of salvation. And all she did was come and see. All she did was testify. That's what a witness does, right? If I'm called into a courtroom to be a witness to a crime, they're not in there for, they're not asking me to be an expert. They're not asking me to have a lot. They're simply asking me to do one thing, right? What is that? Witness. What I saw, what I experienced, I simply give testimony to. And that is all. That is all that Jesus needs for you and I to do. Just give testimony to what you have experienced through his life-saving That's it. That's it. That's all she did. An outcast, immoral, uh, shameful person in society. She simply testified. Look at what this man has done. Look at what he can do. She pointed them. They said, listen, we came because we were amazed by you. But really, you pointed us to the one who is. See, we can't save people. It's not our, not our job. I can't do it. I can't pull it off. All I can do is simply present, this is what Jesus, this is what he says he is, and this is what he's done in my life. And then you allow him to do what he can do through the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? And so in your oikos, in your oikos, there's, there is a now factor Now, Lord, help me. And all I really need to do is witness. I don't need to, I've shared a few things of just, obviously this is not a comprehensive list, but this is just a few things I think, how to witness. I would say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. One of the things in the New Testament that God admires and calls us to do is this word bold. Be bold. Be willing to be bold. Don't be afraid. When the opportunity comes, you're living it out. You have trusted relationships with these people. That's important. But when the moment's right, when the conversation turns, when the opportunity affords, be bold. Don't be afraid. Uh, Second thing is don't argue. (laughs) How many of you have really been changed uh, most of the time through arguments? I'm amazed. We argue just to hear our own voice and then we walk away. And we're like, that person's so stupid. What's wrong with them? You know, we don't, argument's sake's really not going to change much. Every once in a while there's people that, but don't argue. 
You're not called to argue. You are called to give uh, a word of, of hope, right, Peter? But I would say that most of that is in what God has done for you. I would say absolutely probably need to, to know a little bit about Jesus Christ, right? But really, the baseline of your testimony is what has he done in your life? Witness and testify to that. There is no argument for that. There is no argument for that. Don't argue. Don't control the conversation. I got three and four flipped around. Don't control the conversation. Listen. Learn to listen to hurting, broken people. Because as you listen to them, they sense that you care. It's not just about, oh, I got to, you know. Listen. Because in that hurt and in that brokenness, you're able to very easily share, you know what? I was in the same place as you were. And I didn't have hope. I was broken. I was a mess. And Jesus Christ saved me. And the third thing, or the third thing, which is the fourth thing, don't have confidence in your own ability. You know, the word talks about relying on the Holy Spirit to give you help in words. And I guarantee I've experienced this many times in my life talking to someone when the opportunity opened up and the Holy Spirit just helps me to have the words to say in the, in the spirit, maybe not the words because he gave me a brain to know, you know, but in the spirit, being sensitive, discerning in what to say, when, how to say, he does that. You know, Donnie, Donnie was a really good guy. He is a really good guy. I'm pretty confident if you got to know Donnie, you would, you would enjoy being around him. Um, it was my first position out of college. I was a youth pastor. And um, Donnie was uh, my age. You're a little bit older. But man, you just, you, you thought, wow, this is a great guy. He had married a, a girl that was a few years older than him. A girl that had had um, children very young. Um, uh, and so he married her, and he was in his mid to, to late 20s, and he was the stepdad to teenagers already. And you talk about taking on a lot, right? You mean jumping in with both feet. And he just, he lo- he, it was great. You're like, wow, that's incredible that you, uh, you, you, you have that patience, that love. You, you know, Donnie was a, he was a really good guy, so to speak. Um, we became fast friends. We loved sports together. Um, and we just would hang out. Our families would hang out. Uh, I ended up playing a, a lot of softball with him. He'd invite me into the, the beer leagues that he played in. And um, I, would get this, I would get this nickname, Preacher, in a beer league, which is a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun playing in those. It was a lot of fun. But for whatever reason, I never... It got around that I was, you know, and so I was just preacher. Uh, they, they loved that. We had a lot of fun with that. But uh, loved hanging out with Donnie. We have some great conversations. Talk about stuff. Talk about life. Um, Donnie would come to church. Donna was his wife, and she was a believer. Donnie would come, and... Um, You know, as I begin to have this relationship with him longer and longer, I begin to realize 
Chip, you have never just had a conversation with Donnie about what Jesus has done for you. He knows. He's even saw you stand up on a, on a stage and preach about Jesus. You've had all these great conversations about life, about politics, about everything else. Chip, you've never, you've never just looked at him and said, because we had reached that level, right? Trust the relationship. He knew how I felt about him. We were friends. I'd never done that. It bothered me the last year, six months I was there. But yet I could never pull the trigger. I couldn't do it. I don't know why. And to this day, one of the biggest regrets of my life is I never had that conversation with Donnie. And sometimes I think about what's Donnie going to say if he doesn't come to Jesus and one day we're going to stand before the Lord. He's going to look at me and say, what? And I got to be honest, I don't know what to do about it. I could call him up, probably go up, drive up to Grand Rapids, Michigan. But I feel like it might be a little odd, you know. Hey, man, it's been 10 years or however long, eight years, and you want to talk to me about this? And, and you know what? I very well might do that. But it's been one of the biggest regrets of my life. Is why couldn't you just have the conversation? You wouldn't have ruined a friendship. Why? He was a part of my oikos. He was a part of my oikos. And I completely regret not talking to him about Jesus Christ. Simply testifying to what Jesus had done for me and who Jesus said he was. And so I believe what Paul is saying in this little passage and what we need to know as we think about our oikos is simply that last, that last one I want to mention is do it. Be it, live it, do it. Embrace the opportunities that God has given to you. Because for Donnie, for me, that opportunity, if it's not gone, it's, it's really diminished. I'm going to swoop in, have a conversation, and leave instead of being there like I should have done years ago. Do it. Allow yourself to not be afraid and to, in the right moment in time, be bold enough to just testify to what God has done for you. You know, Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, shares a story that a man had written about, and uh, it was talking about the hazards that plagued climbers uh, in 1996 as they were going to Mount Everest. That year especially, you know, in the early 90s is when Mount Everest opened up for climbers to go. And there's been like uh, 3,000, something like that. It might be more now that have climbed. 96 was a bad year. A lot of casualties, a lot of fatalities in the climb. One of those guys who died was Andy Harris. He was actually an expedition leader. And he had stayed at the peak past the deadline time. 
And he stayed longer than he should have. You understand with oxygen and that thin air. And on his, and on his descent, he became in dire need of oxygen. And he radioed to his base camp telling them of his need. And he actually told him, he said, I've come upon some oxygen canisters that other climbers have left, but they're empty. Um, but you know what? Those people that had already went down ahead of him, hadn't stayed long, they knew that those canisters were not empty. And they talked to him. They pleaded with him to just open the canister and use it. And yet he would not. And what happened is his mind had become so disoriented because of the lack of oxygen that he truly began to believe that even what they were saying, it wasn't true. He knew they weren't. Even though everybody else was telling him, we saw them, they have oxygen, use it. He had become completely disoriented by the lack of oxygen. And Andy Harris died on Mount Everest that day from the lack of oxygen while canisters sat right at his feet that could have saved his life. And I would tell you today, you and I have the oxygen that people need, right? I mean, it is, it's it, the grace of God. It's the biggest thing we need. Just like the body needs air, the soul needs grace, needs God's mercy, God's love. Help us to be people who share that with them. Really, this is in the context of your oikos. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and pray this morning with me. I would say that probably there's a good number of you that have a Donnie in your life. Um... You do. And I'm just asking us as we go out of here and as we think about Oikos and I'm just trying to present these things and they grow from here. It's not end all here, but begin to help us think in those ways or continue to think in those ways. I, doubt, I don't doubt for a moment that there's a lot of Donnies that are represented by your lives today. And so I'm just asking you as we leave, let's pray. And I just, would you ask the Lord to give you opportunity? Right moment, right atmosphere, right tone to just be able to testify to them about what God has done in your life. Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we're your ambassadors. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us grace to live out a different life, that it does testify to a world. But the apostle, through the power of your Holy Spirit, also reminded us at the end of that, that now is the time. It's not 10 years, it's not five months, it's not whatever, it's now. And so Lord, help us to live with a sense of urgency that when the moment is good and when the conversation bends that way, Lord, give us the courage, the words, and the spirit to be able to testify to those in our oikos about what you've done for us. Lord, I, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that people represented here in our oikos will find you. They will 
we will have new believers if we will sense your direction and leadership and speak when the time's right. So help us to do it, to embrace the opportunities you've given to us. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen.